Bible. Now, obviously, in order to do that, it's going to be at some pace. And uh, I want us to sort of pull out the map and make sure we understand where we are in God's unfolding story. The last few weeks, we took a look at these three kings, all in succession. They were the three kings who were the kings over united Israel. That's Saul and then David, or David and then his son Solomon. And we talked about the peak of this united kingdom. I mean, what was the point in which Israel was sort of at its peak? And it says this in Second Chronicles 7, 1. This is the moment that Solomon dedicated the temple. Fire came down from heaven, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and people bowed down with their faces to the ground and worshipped the Lord. So that's the peak. So all these promises that were, were made to Abraham about a land, and Moses brings them out of Egypt, and then Joshua brings them into the land, and they, they're beginning to get rid of the enemies, and they build this temple, and God comes. This is definitely the high point of the, the history of the nation of Israel. But unfortunately, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, this, this high point had a, a pretty, pretty quick drop off. The, the Solomon shifted off the original foundation. And when he shifted off the original foundation, it, it caused a crack. And the first crack actually sp- split the nation in two. So we had north and south. You remember Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the two kings of now the divided kingdom. The, the northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And, and the crack that begins maybe around uh, 950 or so B.C., it begins to just continue to to get wider and wider. You know this. If you have a crack in a problem, it, the easiest time to fix it is immediately. Because if you let it go, the crack becomes a crevice and the crevice becomes a canyon. And if you let the foundation begin to crack and you don't address those cracks, then the whole house will eventually crumble. And 350 years later... We read this in 2 Chronicles 36. So we're going from 2 Chronicles 7, the high point, to 2 Chronicles 36. Listen, the leaders, the priests, and the people, they became more and more unfaithful. The Lord sent word to them through his messengers again and again, but they mocked God's messengers, despised their words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. The tragic point to reach. God brought against his own people the Babylonians who killed their young men and spared neither man or woman. The Babylonians set fire to God's temple. See, the fire had fallen down in the presence of God. Now the the fire is entering in through the Babylonians They broke down the walls of Jerusalem. They carried into exile the remnant, and they became slaves. If you're you're trying to understand the scope of the story so far, just that last line, and they became slaves. Just a killer. These people who had been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt and this tremendous rescue that Moses brought them across the Red Sea and they were like, we're never going to go back. We're, we're never going to get enslaved again. They become slaves. It's, it's such a, a sad, a sad ending. And I'm asking myself this morning, I'm trying to answer this question 
Well, what happened? I mean, we have a little picture of it here in Second Chronicles, but, but what happened? And, and the, the statement that I want to focus on this morning from Second Chronicles is this statement. The Lord sent word to Israel through his messengers again and again. Guys, you got a crack. It, it's starting to rupture. We've we got to close this in. We've got to turn around. We've got to go a different direction. And, and prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger come, and the people don't pay attention. Those messengers are called prophets. And so uh, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. So if you find the book of Psalm, Psalms, that's in, sort of in the middle of your Bible. And then take a right. That's Isaiah. You go through a, a few books. And then go to the very end of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. So if you get to Matthew, you've gone a little bit too far. So Isaiah to, to Malachi. I, I just want you to hold that in your hand and, and know this, these are the prophets. When you're reading your Bible, these are the prophets. All of these people between Isaiah and Malachi, there's 16 in total. And, and what you want to do when you, when you ask yourself about these prophets is, where did they prophesy? I mean, God sent these messengers, and at what point did they intersect the nation of Israel? And there's three distinct places. You can either be before the exile, so the crack is beginning to, to, to open up, and, and God sends a prophet to say, it's not too late, turn around. So you can be a, a prophet at that point, or when they go into exile... Like Daniel, Ezekiel, that God sends prophets to, to his people who are in exile. And then when they come out of exile, when, when Ezra and Nehemiah lead them back, and Nehemiah, if you remember, he rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem, Ezra reestablishes the temple, then there's prophets for the people of, it, of Israel that are back in Jerusalem after the exile. So these prophets, when you look at but somewhere between Isaiah and Malachi, when you pick one of those up, the first thing you want to ask yourself is, who are they talking to? Are they talking to the people before exile? Are they talking to the people in exile? Or are they talking to the people after the exile is over? And this morning I want to look at the book of Jeremiah. So if you're in Isaiah, just go write one book and you'll run into Jeremiah. And you can just turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. And I want to give a brief overview of really one of my favorite prophets. And the reason he's one of my favorite prophets is because he's a preacher. And he's a preacher that's sent into a society that is in terrible decay. And, and he has to be faithful to preach. And he preaches over 40 years. And, and when Jeremiah arrives at his pulpit... The first sermon he gives is the most popular sermon he ever gives. He goes downhill when his, in the eyes of his congregation all the way down for 40 years. And the end of his life, they actually take him back to Egypt. Now imagine being God's prophet and they bind you and take you back to Egypt. And one day when he was praying in Egypt, his own people ran a spear through him from the back and killed him. So, so Jeremiah comes into this society that's in, in desperate need. I mean, the crack has really opened up. And we're at the very end. And he actually sort of bridges that gap. And so Jeremiah being able to be faithful as a preacher in a difficult and dark time is a great inspiration for a preacher. 
So I really like Jeremiah. I want you to love Jeremiah as well. I want to look at the, 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 him in just sort of three different ways. If you're sort of a, a timeline, timeline geek like I am, it's about 600 B.C., all right? So if that helps you just in terms of where we are, it's about 600 B.C., and I'm just going to, we, it's 52 chapters, so we're just going to look at a few verses here. And we want to, first thing I want us to look at is God's call to Jeremiah, and then God's case that he, that he exercises through Jeremiah against his own people. And then I want us to see that Jeremiah is a shadow. So let's look at chapter 1, God's call. Then chapter 2, God's case. And then you'll be able to pick up as we go through those two things how Jeremiah is a shadow. All right, so first, Jeremiah chapter 1, his name uh, means the Lord, the Lord hurls. Or the Lord throws. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, came to Jeremiah saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So what Jeremiah is learning at the very beginning is the Lord has already decided in, the, in his mother's womb, he's going to hurl him in to this particular location. His assignment is a divine appointment. It's not by accident. God had already, already planned to use Jeremiah like a, a spear. He's going to thrust him into the world. And he's not just thrusting Jeremiah. This is very important. He's not just thrusting Jeremiah into the world in general, saying the world is in decay. He's thrusting them into the temple, into the church, and saying, hey, you guys inside, you're not okay. I mean, we know the world is crumbling without the Lord, but Jeremiah is specifically coming to a pulpit, and he's addressing people inside the four walls saying, it's you, you're the problem. You're decaying. And he stands there like a, uh, like a, a, a prophet trying to help these people who have religious lives that are, that are paper thin, and they don't even know it. Now, this call, chapter 1, verse 11 through 19, it kind of reads to me like a PowerPoint. So, so Jeremiah knows there's a divine appointment on his life. He's going to be a prophet that, that comes to the temple. And I want us to just pick up these three pictures. Verse 11, and the word of the Lord came to me, came to Jeremiah, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? So Jeremiah is outside walking along perhaps somewhere, and he says, I see an almond branch, or I see an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Now, if you don't read Hebrew, and I suspect most of us don't, you really don't understand why God is saying this. When you see the almond tree, the almond tree is S-H-A-Q-E-D, Shaked. So I see Shaked. That's what, that's how Jeremiah would have said it. Then God responds, verse 12, you have seen well for I am watching Shakod. See, so every time you see the almond tree, Shaked, I want you to remember Jeremiah, Shakod. I'm watching. See, before you do any preaching, before anything happens, Jeremiah, the first thing I need you to know is I'm watching. No matter how it crumbles, no matter how dark your life gets, I'm watching. 
And my word is going to happen. And so that's the very first picture God gives to Jeremiah. He's going to be in 40 years of ministry, and and everything falls apart for Jeremiah over the course of 40 years. Jeremiah falls apart. Jeremiah chapter 20, listen to this. This is Jeremiah now speaking back to God. God, you lied to me. I wish I'd never been born. That's falling apart. Some of you felt that way. Hey, I thought I was getting in for this, and now I've got this. I, I mean, I don't even, I don't even know if you're right, and, and, and it's so bad. I, I just wish I hadn't been born. So everything's falling down. Everything's falling apart. Even Jeremiah's falling apart. And when he's falling apart, he wants Jeremiah to remember the very first picture, Shakod. I'm watching. I'm not absent. What I want to have happen is going to happen. Jeremiah, at the very, almost at the very end of Jeremiah's life, before he's taken off to Israel, I mean off to Egypt, he tells the king, saying, King, it's too late. The Babylonians are coming and they're going to overrun you. It's going to happen. The king can't stand the news, so he throws Jeremiah into a cistern, an empty cistern. Big, dark, carved out cistern that's empty except for there's mud at the bottom so they throw jeremiah in there and he just sink it says he sank in the mud so now we're we're 35 years later into his ministry here's his retirement package they put the lid over the cistern <laughs> what are you thinking if you're jeremiah shakod See, I may not prevail, my word may not last very long, but here's what I know, when everything goes dark, shakod, God's word will prevail. That's the very first picture God wants to make sure Jeremiah understands before any of the crumbling happens. Second picture, a boiling pot, verse 13, very descriptive. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north as the Babylonians declares the Lord. They shall come down like like a boiling pot spilling over. And, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against its walls and against all the cities of Judea. And I will declare my judgments against them for all the evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. It's a, it's a terrifying picture. A, a boiling pot boiling over. When I was in Myrtle Beach after I graduated from college, I was waiting tables down there. And, you know, you come into the back. You never really want to come into the back of a restaurant, right? You just want to, you just, I want my food. Don't tell me what happens in the back. And I, I came through. It was a busy summer night. And, you know, it's a fried, fried, you know, fried uh, fish, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it gets greasy in the back. I won't try to describe it to you. But, you know, it gets kind of slick back there. You got your black tennis shoes on. And some guy's got a big pot of coffee on a tray just came out 
And I come through the door, the pot of coffee spills over and just all over me, whole pot. Steam's coming off of my clothes. What did I say? Shakod! I mean, I don't know what I said. I <laughs> said something at that moment. And, and But do you, do you know the pain that's involved with that? That, that boiling over? So it must have been difficult for Jeremiah to see this to say, oh my gosh, this, this, these, this tribe, this nation of Babylon is going to come like a boiling pot over the nation. And why? Verse 16, they've forsaken me. In Hebrew, they've, they've let go. And here's how they had let go. They hadn't stopped coming to church. What they had done is decided, I'd like to hold on to God, but I don't want to hold on with two hands. I just want to hold on with one. Because there's some stuff out here I really feel like I need. So can I hold on to God and can I hold on to the world? And God looks at those people and say, that's forsaking me. You've let go. And God's never going to allow his people to grasp onto something in the world and have one hand on God and one hand on the world. See, see, in order to get into heaven, you can't be holding on to anything else but the Lord. Nothing else fits through the narrow door. Just you and God. Third, great, another great picture, 18 and 19. And I, behold, I make you this day, this is God speaking to Jeremiah, a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will, verse 19, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, and I will deliver you. See, Jeremiah, you're going to be an iron pillar God's saying to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you're not going to win the high school superlative most popular. Sorry to inform you right now. You're not going to be the keynote speaker for any conference. Instead, you're going to, you're going to be an iron pillar. And the reason you have to be an iron pillar is because your message is going to be so unpopular. You notice the listing? Kings, officials, priests, and people of the land. I think that's pretty much everybody's going to be against Jeremiah. Everybody's going to come against this one man, and he's going to have to be like an iron pillar. He's going to have to stand behind his pulpit for 40 years, and he's going to have to keep saying the truth again and again and again, even though everybody comes against him. I don't know if you remember what's called the survivor's staircase. Anybody familiar with that phrase? It's from 9-11. And so after the Twin Towers fell down, and it was just incredible debris, you remember that, and they remove all the debris, there's only one thing standing above ground in its original place. It's a, it's a concrete staircase. And they, they say thousands of people came through that concrete staircase and survived the fall of the Twin Towers. And for the longest time, as they cleaned up the, the rubble around, they left that staircase sort of just as a reminder. And now it stands sort of silently, almost hauntingly in the museum there. This, this concrete staircase, this survivor's staircase. 
It's such a great picture for Jeremiah. Jeremiah, everything's going to fall down. The, the collapse is going to be beyond what you can even imagine. People, kings, the, the city itself, it's all going to come crumbling down. And I need you to be an iron pillar. I need you to be like a survivor's staircase. Now just think with me. This is before his first sermon. Here's what's going to happen, Jeremiah. You're going to be the most unpopular preacher there ever was. You're going to have to be like an iron pillar because, uh, because everyone's going to dislike you. And in fact, even from the north, you're going, to get, you're going to get spilled on by these Babylonians who are coming to invade. And it's going to be a difficult place. And I want you to remember, I'm watching. I'm watching. You know, when you think back about people you might want to be in the Old Testament, Jeremiah is not going to make your list. In a decaying society, you have to have some people who stand and just say the truth year after year after year after year. No matter what people may think of them. And that's Jeremiah. Well, let's look at God's case, chapter 2. So here's Jeremiah the prophet. He, he's by divine design. He's gotten these, these photographs in his wallet of what God's going to do. And then God makes a case against his people. Verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. It's a, it's a legal term. In another version of the Bible, it says, I'm bringing charges. He, he's getting the people together, uh, the people in the church and saying, I'm bringing charges against you. I'm bringing you into the court. And Jeremiah uses, again, graphic images, and he's trying to arrest the people's attention, hoping that he can shake them out of their denial and get them back into uh, a relationship with God. The first image, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, proclaim this to them, Jeremiah. I remember the devotion of your youth, your, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and the land not sown. See, God, he, he pulled, the first thing he does, he pulls out the wedding album. Do you remember? Remember what it was like? If you've been married for 20 or 30 years, remember you do this sometimes, you go, golly, you remember what it was like? I mean, we didn't have anything back then. We just had love. That was it. And that's sort of the feeling you get. God pulls out the... The, the, the wedding album, and he says, you remember how I brought you out of the wilderness? I mean, you didn't have anything, and I was enough. First picture is this, this wedding album, and what happened? Verse 7, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land, and you made my heritage an abomination. See, you didn't have anything, and I brought you into land that was prosperous, and when you got prosperous, you forgot about me. I mean, can you imagine that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Prosperity is like dust on the, the wedding album. It, it sort of reminds me of the, the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He, he wants the father's wealth, but what does he not want? He doesn't want the father. 
Hey, Dad, I'd like to have all your wealth. I just don't want you. Is that okay? And he takes all the wealth and he squanders it. And it's simply, this is exactly what Israel's done. They've taken all this wealth, all this plenty in this land and saying, God, thank you for getting us here, but we don't need you anymore. And so he's making the case. And even God is stunned, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. Has, has a nation changed its gods? Even though there are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for, for that which doesn't profit. I mean, God's kind of shaking his head. I mean, I've, have you noticed any other nation doing something like this? No. He's, he's stunned. Be appalled. Be shocked. He looks at his bride and he says, you're cheating on me. I'm making the case, but my heart is breaking because you're cheating on me. Second image, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. The, the, the people have keep coming to church, but they don't really think what's in church is going to satisfy their thirst. They just do it for show. What's really going to satisfy their thirst are the things outside. Oh, they come. They sing. They look good. They know a lot of things. But it's not satisfying their thirst. They go out and say, this thing, this person, this event, this title, this really satisfies my soul. And God looks at it and says, it's a... It's a cistern. It's a leaky cistern. Third image. And this is then is a series of images. You can look through them for yourself. Verses 14 through 26. Again, sort of a graphic slideshow. You have become a slave. You are like a donkey in heat, unable to control yourself. You are like a thief caught in the act of stealing. Verse 20, and I quote, you have bowed down like a whore. The problem is deadly serious. The images couldn't be any more graphic. You see, Jeremiah is the preacher. The people have completely fallen asleep. So he can't just play nice. The, 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 the crack has become a canyon. And if we don't quickly do something, this whole thing's going to crumble down upon us. So he's got to shake these people. And even though he does, they, they don't pay attention. Notice the progression now of their sin. Same chapter, verse 23. How can you say, this is what the people are saying to Jeremiah, I am not unclean. I, I'm not unclean. You see how sin works? The first thing it does is denial. <laughs> Me? I, hey, I can show you unclean people. I, if I could take you to my neighbor, wow, they're really unclean. Me, I mean, I've got some problems, but I'm not unclean. That's the first sin is such a great con artist. It, the first thing it does, it blinds you to yourself. And you know it's blinding you if you start comparing yourself to other people. You're blind if, you know, if you're doing that. So the first thing is it, it's denial. And then after the denial, when you sort of get past that, Chapter 2, 
It says in the second half of chapter 2, verse 25, but you said it's hopeless. You ever, ever felt that way? I, I, my heart's so wrapped around with this sin, it's just hopeless. For I've loved foreigners, and I, and I have to go after them. You, you can move from denial to def, you're defeated. I just can't let these things go. It's a kind of denial. It's saying there's nothing outside of these things can actually move me to let them go. Third, verse 29. Why do you contend with me? Remember in, in, in the earlier part, God saying, I'm contending with you. And now God's looking at them and saying, why are you contending to contending against me you see what they're doing hey god you bring charges against uh, me guess what i'm going to bring charges against you you see see i just want you to understand the progression of sin it starts out as a crack that's no big deal i mean i'm better compared to but if you don't arrest the crack it will not be long before you look at this same God and say, hey, I've got problems with the way you're running the world. But the problem is serious. The, the heart condition is frightening. The people end up denying, they start out denying, they end up blaming God. It, it's, it's not a cosmetic problem, it, it's a cosmic problem. And, and here to make matters worse, if we can even make matters worse... Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 11, this is what he says. The prophets and priests are alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it weren't serious. You see what's happening? The people who have a serious wound are coming to church, and it's possible they could get some help, but the priests that are behind the pulpit look at them and say, oh, you got some character flaws, but otherwise you're okay. And everybody goes home and says, yeah, I'm all right. The very people called to get the people out of slumber have decided to go along with the culture and say, hey, we're okay. Let me give you one last picture of Jeremiah. It's in chapter 7 and it spills over into chapter 8. It's called the, the Temple Sermon. And it's specifically directed now to the people of God. And God instructs Jeremiah to, to do something very unusual. He says, okay, we're going to go to the temple today, Jeremiah, and you're going to preach this sermon. But this is what i like you to do. Take the pulpit and put it at the front door. Don't wait for people to come in. And when they come in, as they start coming in, you start preaching your sermon. And this is what I want you to say to the people coming into the temple. Uh, the Lord sees you. He's been watching you all week. He sees that your, your works don't match your words. He sees that you spend, be spending, you've been spending the whole week serving yourself. And, and don't, don't fool yourself to thinking that you can come in and repeat this praise course. And he mentions it. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Quit singing the praise chorus. He sees that you're a hypocrite all week long. 
and he makes Jeremiah put the pulpit at the front of the, of the, door, the front door. Now, this isn't the seeker-friendly service. Imagine you being asked to do that if you're Jeremiah. God sees you. He knows that you're a phony. So don't don't even you, you can go right back out if you think you can come in and just sing the praise chorus and leave and say I'm okay. You're not okay. Well, they don't listen. Chapter seven, verse thirty-three. the description of the boiling pot the the babylonians have come in 733 the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beast of the earth there won't be anybody left to frighten them away and i will silence in the cities of judah and in all the streets of jerusalem the voice of joy And the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride for the land shall become a waste. What a it's hard to read. It's it's really hard to read. Jeremiah's chapter nine, verse one is known as the the weeping prophet. So you'll hear this if you do a Bible study on Jeremiah, say he's he's the weeping prophet. He's the one who wrote lamentations. So you're lamenting over what has happened. He says this about himself, chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. So Jeremiah is the the weeping prophet, probably in a couple of ways. One. He's not just the prophet who proclaims God's message to his people. He actually embodies the message. He's not just a proclaimer. He's proclaiming and he's weeping so the people understand God is weeping. That his people have cheated on him. That's God's heart. I'm so broken that you guys have chosen this way. And so he weeps and he he embodies what God feels. But he also is on the other side. He actually receives the wrath of God himself. He's part of the people. And so he's weeping because God's weeping. And then he gets on the other side and says, and now I'm receiving that wrath and I'm weeping. I'm weeping that I'm suffering and I'm weeping that my people are suffering. Jeremiah is like in this unique position. He he feels God's sorrow as God administers the justice. And then he feels the pain at the same time of the people as they receive the justice. Now let's get to our last point. Jeremiah is a shadow. And of course you've picked up on some of these things. Think again with me. This is a good description of Jeremiah. By divine design, God hurled him into Jerusalem. He completely trusts in God's word no matter how dark it gets. Number three, in the midst of complete collapse... When everyone is fighting against him, he has to stand like an iron pillar. 
Number four, he's the one priest who takes seriously the wound of his people. And he's a kind of mediator. He knows the sorrows of God's heart and he feels the pain of God's people. Now, who does this sound like? Jesus. See, Jeremiah is such a a great shadow of someone to come. Jesus is, by divine design, he's hurled into Jerusalem. He's the one who completely trusts God's word. When it's totally dark in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus doesn't see any way out, and what does he say? Not my will be done, but, but your will. Not my word, but I want you, your word to be done. And on the cross in the midst of complete collapse, when everything's against Jesus, it's a, it's a cosmic event. Heaven and earth are falling down on Jesus. And he has to stand there like an iron pillar. <laughs> and he's the ultimate survivor staircase. He's in this unique position between God and man. He knows both the sorrows of God's heart. And this is a significant difference. He doesn't just feel the pain of God's people. He absorbs it. Click, click. Boom. That's power. I don't need someone who just feels my pain, who understands my death. I've got to have somebody who stands in between and has the power and the capacity to absorb it. And there's only one person who can do that. And his name is Jesus Christ. So Jeremiah is a great shadow. So we stand here at 600 B.C. and we begin to see this light shining on this person who's coming. Coming by divine design. Coming to stand like an iron pillar. Coming because he has a heart of God who's sorrowful for his people. And he's not just going to feel the pain, he's going to absorb the pain of his people. God made him who had no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. I I can't make it any clearer than that. Jeremiah is such a great picture. In that same text that I read from 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Now I'm Christ's ambassador. I implore you to repent and come to God. That's what I'm doing this morning. Like Jeremiah standing behind the pulpit, trying to shake you out of whatever you're in and say, I implore you to come to Christ. You may be in a dark hole. Shoked. Jesus knows it. He has not forgotten you. He is for you. And one day you're going to die. And I'm going to die. And we're going to be standing in front of this holy God. And this is what I'm banking my whole life on. That Jesus is standing there and he looks at God and then he looks at me and he looks back and says, Hey, I paid it all. I'm standing in front of Paul Phillips. You cannot get into heaven holding Anything but Jesus Christ. 
So it's a great day for communion. Every day is a great day for communion. But today, you come forward and you remember. You do this in remembrance of me. You remember he's watching. His word is going to happen. He knows how difficult your life may be in this particular moment. His word is going to come true. You want his word to come true, not your word to come true. And so as you live, you come forward, you remember what he's done. If, if you've not committed your life to Christ, I, I, I would not ask you to come forward. I ask you not to come forward. But I do ask you to think, what have you given your life to when that last day comes and you stand there? Who's going to be standing with you? What, what are you going to bring with you? You only need one thing, but you can only have one thing. And that's Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, on the night you were betrayed, you took the cup in front of your friends, in front of the people who were insiders and said, I'm going to give my life for you. And you took the bread and you broke it and said, you're going to, you're going to die on a cross so that you might absorb, not just feel, but absorb all the sin of my life that I could be welcome into heaven. I pray now that you would uh, bless these elements, you would bless your people who take them, that they would be encouraged in whatever way that, that you see them, you're watching over them, you care for them, you have a heart that breaks for them. For those who may not know you today, I, I pray this would be the day they'd be reconciled to you through your son. In Jesus' name, amen.